0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Well, this week is an interesting week, and as I stand, it is Wednesday morning, and um, Sunday morning when we preached this sermon we forgot to record and so I'm actually coming back on a Wednesday re-preaching this sermon Um, normally I would probably just let it go we didn't get the recording done on Sunday I wouldn't think about it but being that this passage is so central to the book of first peter i wanted to come back and kind of re-record this sermon and make sure we get it in the archives so uh, we have the joy this this morning of actually kind of going back through the sermon i can cut out all the parts that i didn't think were good and and kind of uh, re-evaluate everything but here we are we're going to preach first peter chapter one verses 22 through two chapter two verse 10 and here's our big idea those born of the gospel shall live in it. Those born of the gospel shall live in it. And as we look at our passage this morning, there's really just two different points, two different breakdowns that Peter wants to bring to us. In chapter 1, verse 22, through chapter 2, verse 3, we're going to see that we were made pure to love purely. Uh, Peter's going to call us to an expression of love that's rooted in the gospel and then he's going to kind of change gears a little bit in chapter 2 verses 4 through 10 where we're going to see that we are established by Christ to proclaim him. So all of this is going to point us to this big idea that those born of the gospel shall live in it. And So let's start here and Chapter 1, verse 22, uh, where we are made pure to love purely. Peter writes this in chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is good news that was preached to you. See, we are to love other believers. We're to love, as Peter says, because we're purified. That's what he says in verse 22. If you look at the logic of what Peter is saying, he actually says it backwards and forwards, or forwards and backwards in First Peter chapter 1, verse 22. He writes this. If I can turn the page. He says, "...having purified your souls by your obedience to truth for a sincere brotherly love love one another earnestly from a pure heart so the first part he says since you've purified your souls love one another and in the second part he's saying love one another because you're pure When we become obedient to the gospel, it purifies our souls, what Peter is saying. Peter has just described in in chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, uh, the gospel, how how God has taken us and caused us to be born again to a living hope, and now he's unpacking it again in further detail. He'll even do so again in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, which we'll get to today. However, his point here is to say that this purification should lead naturally to our love for one another. And what he says, first and foremost, is that we are to love one another earnestly. In the same, uh, It's the same term, that uh, term earnestly, it's the same term used in Luke 22, where Jesus prayed earnestly while sweating drops of blood. This love is to be genuine and fervent. Perhaps you've had the experience where you tell somebody something in your life and that person will say to you, well, I'll be praying for you for that. And you can sense almost immediately whether that's honest or dishonest, whether they're going to pray for you or whether they're not. You, You sense that they're either going to enter into this partnership or they won't. They're going to bear your joys and pains with you or they will not. See, this togetherness is fitting for those who claim to believe in the same Lord and that's what Peter is drawing our attention to we love each other with a sincere brotherly love loving earnestly from a pure heart now verse 23 says the same thing it says the same kind of logic it gives us a foundation for this love first uh, verse 23 begins with that word since he's telling us why we should love one another we should love one another because we're born of imperishable seed. The word here is not sperma, it's spora. Uh, but notice that the analogy isn't one of plants and, and seeds and, and farming. The analogy is the one of the bedroom, the marriage bed. See, what this imperishable seed does is it causes us to be born again. This imperishable seed uh, is the living and abiding word of God. So Peter tells us exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the living and abiding word there in verse 23. And then he goes on and he clarifies it in verse 25 uh, where he says, this word is the good news that was preached to you. It's the euangelizo. It's the preaching of the gospel. That is to say, you and I were born into faith by imperishable seed, by the, the message of Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins this message never goes away it always does its work it remains forever in us in fact that's the point that Peter goes on to say that this this message this word this truth this gospel uh, lasts forever it's imperishable he quotes from Isaiah 40 verses 6 and 8 all flesh is like grass all its glory like the flower of the grass Uh, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. See, it starts off to remind us that the man is transient, that we are transient, that our glory is passing, it fades like a flower. Um, My wife and I, we we bought our house a few years ago, and the previous owner had planted all of these annuals that will come up uh, every year. And it's amazing every year when they come up that they show up and they're so beautiful, but within a week's time, they are fading. The petals are falling off. The the flowers are not thriving. And it's a reminder to us, as Peter says, that those flowers fade. But the word of the Lord is the exact opposite. It is uh, perpetually beautiful, perpetually thriving. The word remains forever. Peter's told us here in verse 23 that it abides. Jesus told us that not a jot or tittle would pass away from his book of the law in Matthew chapter 5 or in Matthew 24 he says that heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. So Peter's understanding seems to be that we were born of imperishable seeds so we should love one another. But notice how chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 kind of picks up on the same exact theme. Listen to what Peter says here. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. See, Peter calls us uh, to grow in love. We are to long for the word so we can grow in love for others. And he starts off in verse 1 and he lists off some kind of love killers. Look at what he says. He says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. These words, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, all are the opposite of love. If love is an expression of our hope in the gospel, these things are an abandonment of it. They represent a devotion to something else, namely myself. It's uh, interesting to note that when you have a child you watch a child and and they learn to lie at an early age and what they're doing is they're they're kind of existing in this self-preservation they are telling you something that is untrue in order to preserve themselves well that's exactly what peter is saying here there's some other motivation that is driving us to these things like malice deceit hypocrisy envy slander that we're driven by something other than the lordship of Christ we saw last week when in chapter 1 verse 13 Peter tells us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to us so when we exhibit these patterns of malice and deceit hypocrisy envy and slander we're buying into something other than the lordship of Christ and so what, what Paul, Peter is saying is he's saying we must long for the word. We must long for the lordship of Christ, which is kind of given to us and fed to us through the word of God. As, as he goes on to say in verses 2 and 3, we long for the word to grow in this salvation. It makes sense for spiritual milk to be the word which Peter has already been describing. Thus, Peter is saying, if you've been born again, you should be thirsty for the word of God. Notice Peter says that this is how we grow up, that by it you may grow up into salvation in verse 2. Peter envisions that there's more to Christianity than just conversion, that we should actually take on a set of characteristics in keeping with our faith. And so when a young Christian asks, how do I grow in my faith? We should concur with Peter here. We should agree with Peter that growth comes by the gospel. And gospel kind of comes to us through the milk of God's word. And so if we're to grow, we are to grow in the soil of gospel rootedness, of understanding the provision for us in Christ. The first 3 kind of uh, responds to all of this and gives us a litmus test. He says, if indeed you have tested that the Lord is Good. See, if you want to be sure of your salvation in Christ, you should ask this question Am I growing in the gospel? Am I thriving in the Word of God? J.I. Packer, uh, we've quoted this in the last few weeks, he said this Only a life of present convertedness can justify confidence that a person was converted at some point in his or her past. That is that Packer's saying, if we want to have assurance of our salvation, we should look back and see, uh, or we should look now and see that there should be some present convertedness. There should be some uh, type of characteristics that are defining. I shouldn't be Walking in malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. I should be putting on characteristics in keeping with my hope in Christ. See, as we kind of back away from these seven or eight verses, we see this that Peter has this logic that Christians are gospel birthed and therefore they are gospel formed. That you and I were birthed out of the gospel. That uh, we were born again to a living hope through our belief in Jesus Christ. And therefore we should go on in keeping with that gospel. Uh, Paul says it in Colossians Colossians chapter 2 verse 6. He says, "Um, just as you received Christ, so walk in him. That the, The gospel isn't something we just move on from. We continue in it to some degree. So Peter begins and concludes this section with a call to love in community. As we look at this, we kind of step back and say, selfless love of others isn't natural to us, is it? See, our modern expressions of romantic love even terminate on themselves. Even the way we speak about the ones that we love, our wives or our girlfriends or whatever else, we, 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 uh, we tend to speak about those things in such a way that they, they end on us and what i desire and what i want i I love to listen to song lyrics and uh, as i've been listening to the radio more and more i've noted that uh, a lot of the song lyrics even reflect this kind of selfish orientation to love there's a song by uh, the weekend called blinding lights and he uses the 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 he uses i nearly 30 times in a four-minute song just stop and listen to the song lurks there's another uh, song called broken by lovely the band and, and they say this i like that you're broken broken like me maybe that makes me a fool i love or i like that you're lonely lonely like me i could be lonely with you now this sounds like the makings of a extremely unhealthy relationship doesn't it It sounds unhealthy because this is what gospel-less relationships look like. They can only hope that their partner shows more dysfunction than they do. uh, That they can kind of somehow coexist in this uh, give and take of relationship because they somehow have the moral upper hand. And that's what really these kind of uh, selfish expressions of love kind of terminate on is they have to find someone who's willing to put up with them while also they're willing to put up with the other person. See, our birth in the gospel creates a gospel shape to our loving. Here's a question. You have an egg carton and a milk carton, and they're shaped differently. They have very different purposes. Why? Why are they shaped so differently? Why why can't we throw eggs into a milk carton? Why can't we throw milk into egg cartons? They hold two very different things. Imagine drinking milk out of an egg carton or, or carrying a dozen eggs in a milk carton. See, the, the shape is is actually uh, formed by the purpose. And it's the same thing with you and I as Christians. If we are in Christ, the Christian, we ourselves are gospel-shaped. If you're in Christ, you love because of God's purpose in the gospel, and so we have these uh, commands in the New Testament. We have the command for a husband to love his wife like Christ loved the church. We have this command that we should love one another and outdo one another in showing honor in Romans chapter 12. We should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Our love takes on a unique shape because of the gospel's presence in us. Christian love should burn hotter and endure longer than that of its secular counterparts. Christian marriage should be more forgiving and enduring. Christian parenting should be more patient. Christian children should be more gracious, all because they have a gospel-powered engine that drives them. But Peter isn't done gospeling as it were. In fact, he has still has a quite a bit left in the tank. And in verses 4 through 10, we're going to see that uh, we are established by Christ to proclaim him. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through jesus christ see we are being built into a spiritual house like christ because like christ we are living stones see in verse 4 peter gives a description of jesus he is a living stone now we got to stop and say how is a stone alive peter's next phrase brings some clarity he was rejected by men but in the sight of god chosen and precious See, Jesus' rejection was his crucifixion. We noted last week that Jesus was vindicated by resurrection, that God the Father looked at his righteous life and vindicated him by raising him to new life. We saw this in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, where Peter is speaking. He says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. He's speaking to uh, the Sanhedrin. And he says, But rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So then Jesus is a living stone by his resurrection from the dead. Now we'll see later how he's like a stone, and we'll kind of see that in verses 6 through 8. But for right now, uh, Peter is reminding us that Jesus is alive, that he is someone who has been raised to new life. And what he's telling us in verse 5 is that we too are stones. We, too, are living stones being built into a spiritual house in verse 5. That is, God is resurrecting us and he's forming us into a temple, into a spiritual house, as he says. And Paul's given this analogy before too that that our body is a temple and in Ephesians chapter 2 he's telling us that he's laid a foundation in the in the apostles and the prophets that he's given us the cornerstone of Christ and now he's shaping and forming a spiritual temple through his people. And what happens here in in 1 Peter 2 is that Peter tells us that we're this spiritual house, this temple that's being built up and we are to offer spiritual sacrifices. That is as hebrews says that we're to offer the fruit of lips that give praise to his name you and i to, are to honor christ by a life lived in submission to him it's what romans 12 says that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god and what happens is peter tells us in verse 5 is that we are built up into the spiritual temple we're offering spiritual sacrifices and that all of this is acceptable through jesus christ that is That you and I can't offer just goodness out of ourselves. That we have to be renewed in our nature. That our offerings have to be purified by the blood of Jesus. See, what we offer by faith, as imperfect as it is, is perfected by the blood of Jesus and made acceptable before him. So there Peter is telling us that we are stones being built into a spiritual house for spiritual sacrifices. In verse 6 through 8, he's telling us about Jesus the stone. He's kind of coming back to this idea of, of Jesus as the true stone. And look what he says. He says, For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense." See, what happens is Peter gives us three different quotations. The first in verse 6 is from Isaiah 28, verse 16. The second in verse 7 is from Psalm 118, verse 22. And verse 8 is from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. And what Peter intends to show us is that Jesus is a stone. Peter's mentioned this already in verse 4, but here he's going to bring it into better focus. He's going to kind of uh, pick up this analogy and kind of blow the dust off of it, as it were, and unpack it a a little bit for us. See, ultimately, this stone, Jesus, does two things. And in verse 6, he establishes believers. But in verses 7 through 8, he causes unbelievers to stumble. So really, this stone has two effects depending upon the audience. It either is establishing believers or it's causing unbelievers to stumble. So let's start with that first one in verse 6. Jesus establishes believers. See, again, we see Jesus has become the cornerstone. And this is familiar language to the New Testament. We, we've talked about Ephesians chapter 2, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The word used here in Ephesians chapter 2 is this word that literally means the chief corner. It's clearly a builder's term referring referring to the stone, which was to set be set first. And this stone had to be perfectly square because what it was going to do was set plumb for the entire building. So if you're chief cornerstone was off your whole building was off it's a reminder to us that if jesus wasn't perfect the whole christianity thing is going to be off it's going to be off kilter it's not going to be square as it were but notice the end of verse six and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame when when jesus is believed upon he gives us an eternity without shame In fact, Peter says in in verse 7, he says the honor is for us who believe. So you and I, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we should expect an eternity that is shameless, that all of the things that we have done, that we've performed in life, that brings shame to our heart and our mind will be stripped away. Christ will wipe away all of the tears. He will strip those things away. He will forgive them fully and cast them as far as east is from west. But he'll also extend to us honor in Jesus Christ. So we won't just have a shameless existence. We will have true honor in God's presence because of our belief in Jesus Christ. Now, all of this is held in tension with what Peter wants to get around to in verses 7 through 8, where he wants to describe what it's like to be an unbeliever. What what exactly is going on in their hearts and minds? What is the cause of this state before the Lord? So in verse 7b through 8, Jesus is a stumbling block to unbelievers. And Peter begins with a contrast, but for those who do not believe... Peter goes on and he quotes these two passages, uh, Psalm 118, uh, where he proves that the the guilt of the unbelieving. That's what he says there in verse 6. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. But in verse 7 he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So it's a condemnation to those Jews who um, in doing religious things, saw the works of Christ, saw the majesty of Jesus, yet still rejected to him. It's a condemnation to uh, unbelievers today or Gentiles in the first century who heard the message of Jesus, but did not attribute deity to him, that did not see God in him. They have rejected the cornerstone. And just like a worksite, right? The the, the material comes in and someone on the worksite says, no, that's garbage. Throw it into the garbage bin throw it into uh, the, the trash but the chief builder the architect on site comes alongside and says no this is perfect this is flawless and so there's condemnation for that other worker who's reject rejected the person of Christ as scrap the second quote, quotation gives us uh, the effects of their guilt in verse 8 a stone of stumbling on a rock of offense. Paul says the, almost the exact same thing in Romans chapter 9, verses 32 and 33. The, the two words used, stumble and offense, are both used of someone tripping against something. Like, you can imagine the picture then that um, Paul, Peter is laying out for us that Jesus was this chief cornerstone, but for those who are unbelieving, they, they almost are tripping over the person of Christ, that they just can't seem to get their minds around who Jesus is they can't seem to to truly embrace him as Christ what happens then is Peter concludes with the cause in verse 8 he says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do now, It's interesting here that, that Peter gives us two causes for their rejection of Christ the first cause is their disobedience remember Peter just told us in in verse 22 of chapter 1 that we have purified our souls by obedience to the truth and now it's because of their disobedience that they stumble over the rock that is Christ and now he tells us that the instrumental cause of stumbling is disobedience to the gospel but that's not the only cause that he gives he says also that they were destined it's not just disobedience as the cause that they we're destined to this. Remember, we're reading a letter addressed to elect exiles. And now Peter tells us that those who stumble do so because they are destined to do so. These disobedient unbelievers are destined to their disobedience. We see this play out throughout the scriptures. But in order to keep a healthy tension it's also good for us to remember we'll get to second peter chapter 3 verse 9 where where peter tells us that god desires all men to come to repentance and we've got to keep a healthy tension between those two points that god has legitimate desire for for men to come to belief in him but he also is one who destines men to belief or unbelief to say anything less than both of those truths is to To skew uh, the scriptures, to to taint our theology. Peter wants to bring it around, back around, uh, this discussion, back around to God's church. And in verses 9 through 10, he starts to address the believing crowd again. Look at what he says. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, we are chosen to proclaim, according to verses 9 and ten Peter begins he brings this assurance by listing a, a host of descriptors here in verse nine he says "You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession now we have to stop and we have to consider that this is probably a list of of descriptions that would have equally applied to the state of Israel in the Old Testament if you were to kind of flip back, you would expect to read these very descriptions to be stated about the nation of Israel, chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So we have to note what Peter is doing here. Peter is proving to Gentile believers that they are the true temple of God as the true people of God by using Old Testament passages applied to Gentile believers. Verse 10 says it even more clearly. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This too is a quotation from the book of Hosea where where Hosea is called to name his illegitimate children not my people and so forth. And then to, to recognize God's grace as he changes their names later on in the book. So Peter tells them, But the aim of this grace to them is, in verse 9, it says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, the purpose of this salvation is to proclaim God's excellencies, or as verse 5 says, to offer spiritual sacrifices. See, all of this, the The idea that we are chosen is to the end that you and I would give voice to the the beauty and majesty of Christ who's called us out of our own spiritual death, our darkness, who's caused us to be born again, who's brought us into his marvelous light. So as we kind of recap what's going on, Peter tells us that because we're created by the word, we should be loving. And if we're chosen by God, we should proclaim His excellencies. See, underneath all of this is a pretty fundamental logic. We have an identity as those uh, in Christ, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. And that identity should form our behavior. Our belief about who we are in Christ forms how we act. And we see this all the time, whether we realize it or not. Negatively speaking, sinners behave Uh, They they behave like they believe. Their behavior is formed by their belief. So the hedonist that goes out and and lives like a a, a constant frat party, he does so because he thinks that his life is just one short moment after another. And that really, right now, he should eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow he might die. The moralist, he he, uh, lives out his belief so that if it's true that all we can do is, is try and work our way to heaven to earn God's um, favor through our righteous works and to appease God, then you have absolute warrant to look down your nose at someone else who doesn't act like you do. See, by the way, there's two ways for us to be disobedient, isn't there? There's, there's the, the life of absolute hedonism, and then there's the life of morality, and both are rejection of God's grace given to us in Christ. See, if we consider what, Paul, or what Peter is saying, he shows us that there are consequences to our belief. See, when we believe on Jesus, Peter lists a number of natural outcomes. We love one another. We long for spiritual milk. We are given an identity as God's own chosen people, a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, and so forth. We proclaim the excellencies of Christ. But if we disobey, there are consequences for that too. And chapter 2, verse 8 says that we stumble over Christ. What it does is this all highlights the uniqueness of the person of Jesus. That Jesus is a cornerstone or a stumbling block. That is, he is chosen by God for this exact purpose. Jesus either establishes the Christian or brings judgment to the non-Christian. And only Jesus could uniquely do this. Even at his death, there was a small group of faithful followers, the women who had been with Jesus, stood by him at the cross, but they were surrounded by a crowd of people that just moments before had shouted out, crucify, crucify him. See, this Jesus attracts some and repels others. And what it does is it kind of highlights the purpose of God uh, in the lives of his people or of in those who reject him see Only Jesus, the faultless Son of God, could be sufficient for this purpose. Only this Jesus, who never sinned in his life, who always did as his Father said, who carried out the plan of redemption without erring, it is this Christ who leaves men without excuse when they reject him. And it is this Christ who leaves his people amazed at grace when they accept him. Only Jesus could accomplish this out of true faithfulness to his Father. Only Jesus could expose the hearts of men. See, you and I, no matter how long we've been in the faith, we need Christ. We tend to think about the gospel as remedial. We think it's... uh, Basic. It's too uh, behind us, as it were. I remember a friend of mine sharing that he would go and share his faith at at the county fair. And he would pull people aside and he would begin to share the gospel with him. And they would get frustrated with him. And they say, I already know this. I already understand this. Why are you sharing this with me? They were offended because they thought that the gospel was the basics of the Christian faith. They thought that the gospel was, was Jesus 101. And they thought themselves beyond that. See, the gospel, though, is, is easy to comprehend, but difficult to integrate. It can be learned in five minutes, but take a lifetime to learn to live it out. And you and I, we have to recognize that, that the gospel wasn't just that entrance into faith, that it's the thing that sustained us. Like, like Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, just as you receive Christ, so walk in Him, see the good. News, the gospel is certainly good news for non Christians, right? It's it's by Jesus' death and resurrection that sinners can be made right with God. The death we deserve, Jesus bore on the cross, and if we trust in Him and believe in Him, He'll forgive our sins and He'll give us His righteousness. But we have to recognize this morning that the gospel is still good news for enduring Christians. Every moment we are alive, you and I, if we're in Christ, every moment we're alive, we need saving. We need saved every hour of the day. We need saved in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. We need saved when we discipline our kids and when we reward their good behavior. We need saved when we get the promotion at work and when we lose our jobs. We need saved when we go out to with our wife and when we're home alone. We need saved when the day falls apart and when everything goes to plan. We need saved at the Bible study and the BMV alike. We need saved whether we're in swanky Los Angeles or the ghettos of Cape Town. We need the constant, unyielding grace of Jesus Christ. We never outgrow our need for Jesus. Each day, each hour presents enough sin to damn us over and over again. And each moment, you and I need new grace from God in Christ. Each moment, He faithfully grants it to His own. This morning, when you woke up, Lamentations 3 was still applicable His steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. This last weekend, Saturday, I had an opportunity to sit down with my friend Paul. Paul is the one who married my wife and I. He discipled me when I was in high school. And it was a few years back that Paul lost his wife, Sue, sue was one of the sweetest one of the best and as we were reflecting together over lunch paul told me that every easter he goes to her grave and out loud like a crazy man would he says out loud death you haven't won death you haven't won. She will be raised up to new life. She will be reunited with this body you haven't won. Through the resurrection of Christ, Sue will take on her glorified body and will be renewed. You have not won death. See, that is an expression of trust and faith in Jesus Christ. It's not just the big moments, it's the little moments. It's tomorrow when you go to work and you have the pile of work on your desk. It's when you have uh, the kids pulling at your apron strings all the time. It's when you, you constantly feel the pressures of family and uh, whatever else might be going on. All of those things are a reminder that we need the gospel. <laughs> whether it's trusting that our, our deceased loved ones will be raised to new life or whether it's trusting that today actually has purpose uh, or meaning. The death and resurrection of Christ still informs our day. It's not just entrance into faith. It's not just something that delivers us into the presence of God someday in the future. It's what I need this morning to be reminded of God's grace in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make us a people who moment by moment, hour by hour, trust in the goodness of God. In your goodness in Christ. Or we believe right now that you have seated us in the heavenly realms, that someday when we're brought into your presence, we will be ushered into your, into your presence and, and know you fully. But right now, we trust that that will happen. We bank on the future grace that will be revealed to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.